Mr. Kant would have you believe that reality is purely noumenal and beyond the reach of our phenomenal consciousness, thereby being inherently unknowable. Mr. Kant claims that a true deontological ethics is based on a universal maxim that must never consider specificities of circumstance, character, or likely outcome. Mr. Kant holds that the aesthetic appeal of this sublime is purely in its awakening in us a sense of our own rational mastery over situational being. Immanuel Kant, wrong on metaphysics, wrong on ethics, wrong on aesthetics, wrong for America. Paper by the committee to elect Friedrich Nietzsche. I am Friedrich Nietzsche and I approve of this message. Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And I'm Ben Madison. Ben Madison's coming to us from the Garden State, my home state, New Jersey. Not the state of confusion. Well, maybe it is, but... It's a little bit of both. So how did you get here, Ben? Did you take the ferry over, or did you... How did you come? I hitchhiked. Oh, good, uh, good. It, it, it took a while. There were some sketchy people, but, you know, we made it up 95, and I didn't die, so I feel like that's a that's win. Always, that is usually a win. Yeah. Yeah, very nice. He's doing double duty. He was uh, on the lectionary podcast. Thanks for staying now. He's in our Bulgashishta session. session. Let's get that right. (laughs) The alt-right is drunk on Nietzsche and I'm drunk on our Bulgashishta episode. But yeah, so we wanted to take a little time and bring in an Episcopalian on this because (laughs) uh, when we think of Nietzsche and and the alt-right, you know, Nazis, we often think that Episcopalians should be... Episcopal church. Yeah, Absolutely. we really do. And we had a couple of things we need blessed while you're here. So I hope, okay. you, brought, I hope you brought the water. The magic hand. All right, very nice. Actually, yeah, because the the bulb on this preamp is out, actually. But <laughs> we also need some liturgical color consultation on what we should yeah, do. It's always because, Ash. Because you guys it's are, al- it's always you guys are good at that, man. You I'm go- a low <clears throat> churchman. I mainly, I mainly wear black and white, so... Uh, Oh, oh, so you're going to be useless of no help. So you don't, I mean, like on Pentecost, you don't have the flying, the flying things walking up and down. Actually, yeah, my church absolutely does have a kite. Yeah, we (laughs) we totally do. They didn't bring it out this year because they forgot uh, or they couldn't find it or something, but we definitely have a kite. So you're low church, but you still keep the kite. You know, you do what the people want. Do what the people want. That's right. Pastoral care. Do what the people want. That would be probably one of the catchphrases of your tradition. But that's all right. That's good. Oh. I have a deep appreciation. Ah, I have a deep appreciation for tradition and uh, happily worshipped in Episcopal Church for a couple of years. So very nice. As cool. opposed to unhappily worshipping. Yeah. There's no, a lot was, of those. So. I was happy. I was happy. Yeah. So the, I, uh, I think this article is really interesting and I tweeted it out and we decided to talk about it. It's by Sean Illing. So hat tip to Sean Illing. It's in Vox. I don't know much about Sean Illing, but I think he's a Nietzsche scholar. And the title is The Alt-Right is Drunk on Bad Readings of Nietzsche. The Nazis were, too. Yeah. So this is relevant, I suppose, because now the alt-right is having its kind of... It's interesting that, that somebody said that the event in Charlottesville was not a protest. It was a pride rally. Hmm. And hmm. I mean, they were sort of a pride parade. It was, And they were kind of going off of the sort of LGBT community where the pride thing is, just, hey, like we're, we're no longer... We don't want to be in the shadows. We want we're to be here. a mainstream part yeah, of society. Here. And in some ways, I, I think that there is something like that in, it seems like in the alt-right's consciousness that, that, hey, this is our time right now. Well, and I think that's part of, um, you know, I've actually been, uh, I had a reflective uh, comment today, and I've been thinking about it. I reflect full. I don't know which one would be the 
say that from uh, someone who was responding to a kind of an ongoing um, dialogue. People are not dialogue, but thinks people said something I posted and to try the, you know, the need to understand. So, Anna, I appreciate your comment. Um, and I do think in terms of what exactly Donald Trump's relationship to the alt-right, you know, first of all, he probably doesn't even know. But, I mean, maybe there's a need to be more precise about it because I do think there's a sense where they feel like they have been given permission to come out of the shadows. And you can understand in some, again, trying to be sympathetic the best I can, there's a sense, well, why don't we, why are we able to have our voice? Because things we find very offensive are given space in the public square. And so I, I think that's an interesting way to think about that. It seems like it seems to me like there's this hunt for normalcy, right? That the idea is that in some ways you see the what happened in Charlottesville, you see the other sort of free speech rallies. And what they want is for a part of the normal viewer who can say and dismiss these folks and say, Oh, you're right, this is this is unreasonable, this is crazy, it's anti Semitic, whatever. But if there's a part that can connect, right? Like I, I think it's br- it's sort of, it's sort of brilliant to connect it to these Confederate statues. Because in some ways you can get people who would otherwise be willing to say the alt-right is deplorable, they're talking about anti-Semitism, they're racist. But you can get a whole bunch of conservative-leaning people to say, oh, but we're tearing down history, right? So there's this – they're reaching for like a bit of normalcy. Yeah, but it's weird. It's interesting though because don't you think on some level Donald Trump – like let's say you're somebody that is – you're like, hey, look – I don't consider myself racist. I don't consider, I, I have no sympathy for the Nazis. All right. But I really am a fan of Southern heritage and I want these statues preserved. I, Trump kind of equated you with it. See, that those are the kind mm-hmm. of people that would show up at a neo-Nazi rally. I think right. most of those people would say, no, I would, on the normal, again, I quote Howard Stern. <laughs> Stern said, decent people don't march with not. When you go to a protest, if you see Nazis, they're like, oh, I think there's something wrong with the cause. <laughs> well, I also think, for instance, that term Southern her- 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 heritage is a loaded term. Mm, there are oh, people that, that use that term but don't realize what it really stands for. There's a great op-ed in the New York Times today by a historian that actually puts some of this, you know, the statue building in, is a, in the collapse of Reconstruction, which we talked a little bit about last podcast, puts these statues where – not about honoring Confederate dead. Mm-hmm. It was about resurrecting the, you know, the noble lost cause and the active cause of keeping uh, African-Americans repressed. That happened in the beginning of the 20th century up through the Civil Rights Movement. It's still going on. So I think, I think you're, you're right. And I, I think that there's a kind of common sense thing here that gets lost. I've also – I also – By the way, you know what's a real noble lost cause? What? Police Academy sequels. <laughs> I mean, Steve Gutenberg, good actor, decent actor. Well, you know, Bobcat Goldthwait. I mean, he had like, he's also now a very serious director. I did not know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, he's a serious director. But, you know, one of the comments I got on the post I put on uh, Resident Exile was if you really, if, if you really want to blame someone who's really anti Semitic, then you need Barack Obama. Barack Obama was the anti Semitic president. And that struck me that people, like you said, good people may not want to associate with Nazis, but they may dislike liberals or who they perceive liberals even more than they do these nice khaki dressed guys walking the streets of Charlottesville. And that's the enemy. My enemy is my friend. That could be a little bit of that going on. Speaking of which, one of us has khaki pants on. <laughs> so the day of the rally, my brother <laughs> sends me this picture of a close-up of, <laughs> one, a of nice the, transition. <laughs> of one of the guys at the rally with the, with the tiki torch and everything. And it's it zoomed in, and it kind of looks like me, but without like 
the great beer that I have, as opposed to like, it was like a bad beer. And he just texted me and said, this is a bad doppelganger to have. <laughs> I was like, well, I don't own any white polos, so we're right. good. Good, yeah. good. And, yeah. and you can, you do have, you know, an alibi where you were that Saturday, just in case. Where were you that Saturday? By the way? I was in eastern, uh, I was in Idaho at an Episcopal summer camp. Uh, all right, so there are no witnesses. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a handful. <laughs> so in the, in this article, the it opens but with a quote from Richard Spencer. It was a very nice haircut. Uh, and remember, if, if there are might be a few people who don't know Richard Spencer, he oh, but he's one of the the um, big figures of the alt-right and one of their intellectual figures. I quote David, ben David Bentley Hart in an interview with our friend Jason Michelle. He said, Steve Bannon is what passes for an intellectual among the stupid these days. <laughs> no, that was not me that said it. He also said they were talking about the pro-life movement and Donald Trump. And he said, you know, like, this is how evil destroys noble movements by uh, their associations. And they don't realize they've hitched their wagon to a man-ridden horse that can only gallop toward cliffs. <laughs> but, but, but Spencer is an intellectual part of it, it, one of the intellectuals. He uh, can use three syllables. Right. Right. He, he uses thinks, three syllables. He yeah, thinks right, he's exactly. an intellectual, right? right. Yeah, yeah. Here's what passes for intellectual <laughs> these days. But it, it says, you could, you could say I was red-pilled by Nietzsche. And, of course, he's referring to the Matrix where Morpheus... So you ever notice, by the way, he offers Keanu Reeves the the red or blue. But you ever notice, like, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure to like most of his, it's the same voice, like, excellent, Morpheus. Whoa. Like, he's like, he never really, whoa. Yeah, he never really changes. But so the red <laughs> pill is like, I know Kung Fu. I know Kung Fu. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Socrates. Uh, where he, he basically, he's referring to that scene where, if you take the red pill, things are opened up for you, you know, as opposed to the blue pill where you're kind of putting on false consciousness or something, suppression, ignorance. So he... Go ask Alice. Exactly. One pill makes you... All right, go ahead. So he says that for Spencer and other alt-right enthusiasts of the 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, the dark truth goes something like this. All the modern pieties about race, peace, equality, justice, civility, universal suffrage. That's all bullshit. These are constructs cooked up by human beings and later enshrined as eternal truths. So he then goes on to describe the sort of slave morality versus the sort of noble morality that Nietzsche talks about in The Genealogy of Morals, which I think is a fabulous book. But uh, I remember the first time I read it, I just, I stopped, walked outside. It was actually in the summer and I thought my mind is officially blown. I might've been red pilled in a different way. <laughs> wound, up, wound up in a different way than Spencer. But so, yeah, I thought this is, it, this is interesting because this guy actually, he says there is of course much more to Nietzsche than this. <laughs> Someone silly enough to have written a dissertation on Nietzsche. <laughs> I've not been that foolish, but, uh, uh, but he says that, you know, you do actually encounter lots of uh, Nietzsche, lots uh, of this kind of surfacey view of Nietzsche right. on the alt-right and other places. So <laughs> if you read Nietzsche like a college freshman cramming for a midterm, you're bound to misinterpret it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is how most people read. Or, if you, or if, even if you're Nietzsche's crazy sister. <laughs> I mean, right. yeah. Yeah. So I thought this is interesting because, you know, I, I think Nietzsche is one of my favorite philosophers. So I, I think that, and I often find it, I mean, I mean, most Nietzsche scholars will tell you Nietzsche 
was very critical of anti-Semitism. He didn't have a sympathy for fascism. And the Nazis did like Nietzsche. And again, they were reading him like a college freshman cramming for midterm. But also, I think Nietzsche's sister, Mary, after he was dead, one of his sisters, I think, married a kind She was sympathetic. Of, she was sympathetic, her. married a, a, a Nazi, probably Nazi, Nazi yeah. and yeah. kind of peddled Nietzsche sort of... I mean, you can see... Um, pictures of of Nietzsche's sister at certain early rallies among certain so I mean she, she was appropriated maybe I think willingly but nonetheless naive was she a handsome woman uh, our, well, who, I was supposed to name the woman and uh Austin Powers the uh the German uh spy that's part of Dr. Evil's they have a love child with Dr. No. Evil <laughs> she looked like her <laughs> I want to be a veteran a veterinarian will you be an evil veterinarian <laughs> <laughs> she had the same mustache. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Of, yeah. No. Yeah. But no, I think, it, you know, <clears throat> and again, you know, I've talked before, probably one of the most misunderstood ideas of Nietzsche is the whole Ubermensch, what that really is about. Yeah. 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 And that, yeah, that, that this is kind of something like a fascist dictator. It's, I mean, it's not at all what he's talking about. Uh, but, but, you know, it is interesting that also that, that Spencer, who's an atheist, an atheist defender of Christianity, because he thinks that, like, even though he, he is sympathetic with Nietzsche and the death of God, he thinks that somehow Christianity has been sort of the cultural and intellectual force that's made European white civilization great. <laughs> and so it's this weird thing. Unlike Nietzsche, he becomes a defender of Christendom, even though he's an atheist. There is no God, and Mary is his mother. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So... Yeah, I thought this is interesting because it, 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 the, the, here you actually have, uh, I mean, the article talks about the irony of the racist Nietzsche. That Nietzsche was interested in ideas and freedom and thought, and he was worried about isms and ideology, especially with the, the death of God. He thought, right. that, he thought that basically as we go, as bourgeois Europeans and intellectual Europeans get beyond religion, that they they still haven't been able to outgrow this sort of penchant for the quote unquote eternal truths of reason and it, it, with sort of the erosion of Christendom Nietzsche actually I think was worried that groupthink would be yeah. the, the way people would search for meaning and identity so yeah I mean as, as Halleck reads the idea of death of God that Nietzsche is as is as worried and sometimes about that as he is proclaiming it as a truth yeah yeah no, yeah yeah so yeah so the best thing we could do for Richard Spencer is maybe get him the spark notes to Nietzsche. <laughs> <laughs> or give him a book about post-Christendom. Or maybe just tell them, just like there are natural laws, there are spiritual laws. Hmm. What are those? Well, share them with Jesus. Talk to him about Jesus. Oh, like the four, like Bill Bright. You were going right to Bill Bright. I went right to Bill Bright. That could be like a sneak attack on him. <laughs> <laughs> Walk him down Roman's He could road. infiltrate. He could infiltrate that kind of the crusade. Campus crusaders could infiltrate the group and and convert them. <laughs> I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? 
Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? Gracious conversations characterized by a particular combination of wit, empathy, reflection, and human understanding. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, and Josh Redder. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. So anyway, well, all right. Now, and you're, you're a pastor in South Jersey. How are they reading Nietzsche at Holy Trinity? <laughs> or... How are they more like a impor- college freshman? <laughs> but more importantly, how are they reading the signs of the times and dealing with them? Because uh, I lived in South Jersey for a while, and there, mm-hmm. I mean, parts of South Jersey is is south. Parts of is south of the Mason Dixon line. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So uh, tell me what's going on in your communities around these issues. Oof. Man, that is a that's a dangerous road to trod. Well, uh, it is a it is a certainly more conservative place. Uh, than other places in New Jersey. But I also am under the impression that New Jersey thinks it's a lot more progressive than it actually is. Hmm. And it like it votes as it imagines itself, not as it actually exists. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's walking this fine line between openly and emphatically condemning racism, white supremacy, and America's original sin, right, slavery, while at the same time offering uh, grace for people who are not quite there yet, right? And I think, like, that's why the Christendom part of that article is so interesting, I think, at least for me, is his sort of understanding of why Christendom is valuable is not dissimilar from a lot of uh, people trying to hold on to conservative values. Right. Right, that there's this force that, like, wasn't it great when we all were sort of forced to live in this world that looked a certain way. And now because of the 60s and whatever thing, basically the death of Christendom, it's thrown all these things into disarray. Which is by actually the 1660s. The 1660s, that's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, we always like to remind everybody that uh, Christendom didn't die because Haravos or the Alban Institute <laughs> said it did. Yeah. The Alban Institute, that's, by the way, for other clear, if the Alban Institute shows up at your church to consult, start circulating your resume. That's, <laughs> if they didn't start the problem, they'll finish it and finish you. <laughs> I remember one time we were the Alban Institute came to this church I was working at. They were basically 40 grand or whatever spent was to, to say that the senior, it's a pretty large church, the senior pastor has a tough time communicating with the congregation. The congregation has a tough time communicating you came with senior press. Like my buddy, I were like, we did, we would have done that for four grand. <laughs> and you can hire me now to do it for two. <laughs> yeah, Bill did that for two grand. But there, there is a reality, right? So one of the things that I that I sort of I feel like because I'm younger clergy in my uh, tradition, right? Mm-hmm. I think the next youngest clergy person is like 15 years, maybe. Oh wow! Wow! 
Yeah, there's a big gap. But there's this sense that like the church and Christendom are changing and dying and they need to be imagined in a new way. And then there's this counterforce that says we can hold on to it for as long as possible or in some ways even bring it back. And uh, it like the way that Spencer sort of imagines these things to be – I love what the article says uh, – Christendom without Christ, right? It's sort of how I feel like parts of at least my tradition. Which, which are sounds like on. the myth of the Grand Inquisitor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which might turn Spencer on. I mean, it's the yeah. dark <laughs> But it's sort of it's sort of this postmodern, post Christendom reading of Nietzsche, right? That then gets us this, these weird readings that look like the, the same way the Nazis read it. Yeah, it's, to me, it's more like a preliterate reading of Nietzsche. <laughs> There's these things called words and you assemble letters in such a way so that they make sentences. Uh, I don't know. Sun go away. Me nervous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting too, because you look at Nietzsche's concern about morality, right? In the genealogy of morals, he talks about how basically that, that he thinks, and here he's leaning on his training as a philologist. And he says, if you look at the original words for good, they're about strength and power and he imagines like sort of noble morality, like the blind beast like achilles or something he's thinking of these sort of homeric type noble types and the opposite of good is bad it's not evil it's like well i'm glad i'm not a peasant or I'm somebody that's weak does, right i'm glad i'm not weak but it's not you know it's like the lion doesn't think of the antelope as evil or you know like, but he thinks the slave morality is actually a morality out of resentment like right. where where actually starts first with evil and defines good over against that from a sort of inability to express yourself or oppression or seeming inability to to have spontaneous freedom and to to be who you want to be and he actually thinks that and this is where also where he where he people think he's anti-Semitic because he thinks that the, the ultimate form of this is perfected by, by Judaism. Uh, and where, as opposed to Kant and Hegel and others that distinguish Judaism and Christianity, he doesn't. He thinks they're, you know, he's, yeah, he's so again, he, 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 he thinks that the, that this is sort of, and he puts Platonism in, in here and other, but that, that the slave morality actually, he thinks there's something admirable about it because it actually domesticates the strong. So he thinks ultimately it's perfect. So right. you, you actually get people to act against their nature and you get people with power and, and self-expression did not express themselves. So he thinks that that, that slavery, but it's funny because he, I think he would see neo-Nazism as a form of slave morality because it's defined first by evil. Like it, it starts by animosity towards the other, right? That's invading my space and is pervasive. And, and then good becomes in reaction to this, Fell encroachment. Yeah. So, so the the irony is like Nietzsche would look at them and and see just a form of slave kind of yeah, thing, and a pretty unevolved one. Yeah. I mean, anytime that some of the root of your thinking or ideology is either fear uh, or inferiority, then that's that you're you are in the slave. Yeah. 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 And how telling is that? Uh, you know, the chant that they had it at uh in charlottesville right you will not replace us like that's doesn't that that reaches to the heart of like that fear uh that sort of oh yeah the jews were not, yeah the jews jews will not replace us although bill maher said friday well you know i'm thinking when trump got out there and made that rant the the following week and he had uh jew you know uh who's the trip menaki menaki who's Cohen. No, well, the one guy is the Goldman Sachs guy. Oh, right, right. And then Ben Menak or whatever. They, they're both, both Jewish. Jewish finance guys. He says, well, they're thinking about quitting. And guys, if you do quit, 
Jews will replace you. Says <laughs> <laughs> Bill. Well, That's right. It. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting. The whole. I mean, what's it's kind of the inverted Christian idea of supersessionism. Yeah, that Christians we replaced you. You don't get to replace mm-hmm. us. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's a. I, I, but I want to get back to again my <clears throat> thoughtful comment from person who spoke to me this morning through Facebook saying, is it possible that too much oxygen is being taken out of the air from our concern about these marginal groups when some of the stuff is happening in, in EPA, some of the things that are happening in the Department of Justice are perhaps in long term much more damaging to the values we hold dear as a country. Mm. Oh, I, yeah. And this, I mean, there was an article, it got a lot of heat. And I mean, this is being hot and debated. Do, do you... Basically, are, is the left giving the alt right what they want? Because like they want people to show up at protests. Yeah. They yeah. want like mayhem. And like if pe- if people were not responsive, they the the movement wouldn't be sort of accomplishing its its ends. And so yeah, I mean, I think that is a legitimate concern. Yeah, it's like when you have the different sects come to your door and you treat them cruelly and reject them and you know say no, you're going to hell or whatever. You feed them and say, oh, I must be right because I'm being persecuted. Yeah. I, I do think there's a kind of psychology about that. And I, I yeah, I, I do worry about our attention span as a country and the proverbial shell game that either is being played intentionally or unintentionally. And uh, we, you know, we are just as guilty as any other groups go after the shiny object. I, I'm getting back to that as a pastor. I mean, as a pastor with convictions about these things, and you've expressed them. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does that inform your pastoral work with a congregation that probably it has some diversity in terms of opinions about these issues? So I typically don't preach about current events because I don't like to. Um, and this Sunday, or this, but kind this of like, Sunday. but during Advent, do you preach like? When, oh, you don't you don't mean like like liturgically? Yeah, like, current, like, I'm just current, yeah, so, CNN so, current events. Uh, oh, okay, so um, but this Sunday I basically stood up in the pulpit and said, "Look, I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to do." Right? Oh. Am I supposed to talk about this? Am I not supposed to talk about this? Usually my out is the gospel. And the gospel this week was uh, Jesus and the Canaanite woman. Ah. So there was no out to be had. Yeah. So I tried to walk the fine line, right? Encourage everyone from the outset to remember that it's not what goes in that defiles, it's what comes out. Right. Uh, that in no uncertain terms, we all need Jesus. Right. And just because you're, you and I have right thinking about this doesn't mean that we need Jesus any less. Yeah. Uh, but then to see that Jesus' interaction with the Canaanite woman, right, is one where, is it racist? Can you say that? It makes people nervous, right? Uh, it certainly makes them uncomfortable. There's no icons of. Uh, right? Well, I, I think uh, to the degree that first century Jewish thinking about others was problematic, Jesus adheres to that right. in this text. <laughs> That's a really good way to put it, <laughs> right? And then how does that influence how we interact with our community and see the world? Right. And the beautiful thing is that she responds to him bravely, pretty much pushing aside what he says, even pushing aside what he says to the uh, to the apostles, right, that he came only for the lost sheep. And then Jesus changes in the sense that the his mission is expanded to everyone. Yeah, so, Je- Jesus needed the Syrian Phoenician woman in some degree to the in a way that she needed him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that she shows him grace, right, that there's a grace that's shown in her coming back at him and staying there and not wandering off upset. And that it's a grace that then expands to literally everyone. Yeah. Well, it's it's not dissimilar to uh, what what Jacob hears. You've you've wrestled, you've contended with God and man and prevailed. So I mean, there's a certain kind of 
invitation in the New Testament to, to wrestle with God. The guy that Jesus kind of invites, because he engages her in conversation, he's inviting this kind of back and forth. I actually, I like that a lot. I like the fact that you shared with your congregation, you know, you opened up the internal struggle. I mean, the behind the scenes of what's going on with you. I think that's a vulnerability and honesty that uh, is is exactly what that pastoral moment required. I think I hope they responded well to it. Yeah, well, I haven't checked my email yet, so, uh, <laughs> so I wouldn't. I wouldn't tell them to it. No, until I don't, yeah, no, you know, yeah. I mean, but uh, no, they, they. I think they definitely did. It's. I think so we're not a predom- like we are a predominantly white congregation, but we're not all white. Right? There's about fifteen percent diversity in my church, which is you know, which is good for your average Episcopal church. Yeah. The town we're in is predominantly white, like significantly so. So in some ways, just preaching a fire and brimstone one about the dangers of white supremacy, he's just going to alienate everybody almost immediately. Like there has to be this pastoral component that says, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but I'll tell you where I'm at, which is basically like, I know that either by my inaction or unaction or historical action of my ancestors, that I've let these things go on and that I have to say that, apologize for it seek redemption and forgiveness and reconciliation and then find a way to encourage others to do the same. And I guess we'll see how it works. <laughs> yeah. But don't check your email until after that. Yeah. Course. You know, don't I ruin also, the experience. And, and I actually, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily feel that I can or should apologize for what my ancestors did, mm-hmm. but I have to acknowledge that the road I walk on, they paved. Yeah. And so the benefits I have, the advantages I have and the disadvantages and suffering that others experience is because a table that was set uh, of, with people that were my kin to my kind. And I think uh, <laughs> that's the insidious part. Right. And I think uh, because sometimes I, I've been part of a liberal mainstream uh, denomination, which I was a part of for, for many years, we would periodically make progressions. You know, we'd make, we'd make public statements. Oh, yeah. I was actually part of... Uh, I was part of a, uh, a Jewish-Christian dialogue uh, that went on for four or five years, a national one. And they, other people, they rotated different people in. And there was a Korean pastor, a really nice guy, young guy, and he's doing some academic work. And we're doing back and forth with Jewish folks. And, and at one point, he goes, i just like to take this moment. And on behalf of all Christianity, I want to apologize to you all for everything we've done. And I looked at him and I go— uh, thank you. Uh, he goes, it's okay. I'm Korean. I could do that. <laughs> That's what I, so I don't to this day. So, uh, uh, but um, that made him feel better. Right. I'm still confused by it. <laughs> so, uh, and the Jews just, you know, they were so, they were polite, but I can, you know, they kind of thank you and then looked at each other. Like, why, why are we doing this? Thank you and good day. <laughs> <laughs> thank you and good night, America. Get that guy a case but of turtle wax. But I do think, you know, that's, that is a line. And, and um, yeah, C.S. Lewis read an uh, essay that I don't think very many people read, The Danger of National Repentance, and they had called it a day of national repentance. Hmm. And he says the danger of those kind of mass repentance is because I can just go and get grace for something I didn't do hmm. and feel better and feel like I've absolved the past without doing anything in the present. Hmm. And I, I think there is, there is um, I think, um, again, even just tearing down the statues without engagement to, to understanding all around it, to me, um, is, is problematic. Now, if I'm in Baltimore, I mean, I, I respect what the mayor of Baltimore did. 
You yeah. know, she probably saved lives there. But I do think there's, you know, for instance, I, I, I didn't realize how those statues, each state, I forget where it is in, in the Capitol, but each state gets to put two statues representing their state. Well, Mississippi and South Carolina, both the statues are Confederate figures. <laughs> and Tim Kane this morning is saying, I have to think that all the years we've been here, we can do better than that. And he goes, Virginia, my state, George Washington, Robert E. Lee says, there are a lot of amazing Virginians <laughs> <laughs> who didn't whip slaves and put salt in their wounds like Robert E. Lee did, that we could put a statue. What does New Jersey have? Bruce Springsteen and Bon Jovi? Bon Jovi, that's it. That's, that's definitely it. <laughs> Isn't Frank Sinatra from New Jersey? Yeah, Hoboken. Yeah. Hoboken, yeah, or Hoboken. And Jerry Lewis, I think, was born in New Jersey yeah. as well. So it's interesting because Frank Lake has a really interesting treatment of the Syrophoenician woman in clinical theater, which I think is it's moving and beautiful and insightful. But in, in some ways, Bill, it echoes some of what you said about the invitation to wrestle because he, he thinks maybe Jesus is doing something different than a lot of people. Like, there's a kind of getting her to own, you know, the reality of her situation and yet not that that's not all there is and, and you know, kind of creating the faith and commending it. It's an interesting reading. But I think, you know, there's a, there's a kind of Christianity that is Nietzsche. I mean, what Nietzsche is critical of is this, although he finds it ingenious with it, what the sort of priest figure does, he thinks Christianity has this thing down because it makes everybody sort of bound by a sense of original sin. Right. And yet, you have this hope in redemption from it. So he, it sort of creates this inner, we call it you know, the, the aesthetic ideal. So for people that really can't express themselves in, in, in more dynamic pursuits, it creates this game on the ground that gives you, you your life has cosmic meaning because you got this problem, but then there's this hope. But I, I mean, Nietzsche thinks it's very much imperative indicative, right? If you do this the way we, we say to do it and, and abide by the schema, then you'll find redemption. Whereas the gospel seems the inverse of that, right? It's, 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 it's not imperative indicative, it's indicative imperative, where you are new, made new. Now there's an invitation to walk, to walk. In newness of life. Yeah. 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 Like it's not, it's not a kind of uh, do this and you'll be saved, but it's sort of, you have, you found this, you're, you've been found and now there's new creations. Or it's a recognition that you can't do it. Yes. Right. Yes. A recognition that you can't get to where you want to go. Yeah. Right? Right. It's not these boxes to check off. Right. right. Levels to up. Right. It's like a, I am here and I'm not going anywhere else. Yeah. 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 That's so it makes me think that like would Nietzsche have, I mean, he said he wouldn't believe he, a God that couldn't, that, that didn't dance. And I wonder, I don't, I, I don't know. I wonder if like some of his, yeah, I, I wonder if he could have imagined a different kind of invitation to faith. Would, would, I wonder, yeah, I wonder what would have happened if he knew that him. I danced in the morning. Yeah, Maybe I don't know. He needed, he needed a little shaker. Him not, him <laughs> no one needs shaker. Or lo- Lord of the Dance. Lord of the Dance. It's not a bad one. It's not a great one. <laughs> it's not a good no. one. No, it's not. And I, and it's pretty bad when they play it on an organ and a bunch of <laughs> older white people are singing it. But then, yeah, it's not. I always leave during that singing. But, but it's a nice idea. I like the idea of the Lord dance. I just not a big fan of the hymn. Well, uh, so sort of riffing on what you said, I wonder to what extent Nietzsche's understanding of Christianity as sort of this level up thing is not dissimilar from Richard Spencer and the alt-right's understanding of how Christendom works. Oh, yeah. Right, because they're sort of Mm -hmm. like, if we can get all the pieces of Christendom back to where they were, we will ascend into this white ethno-state that will protect our heritage, whatever. 
Yeah. Right. But it's not like you're not going to be able to get it back in the same way that uh, the Christian promise of reconciliation and redemption is not something that you can achieve, right? It has been achieved and you're invited into it, sort of into this new reality of participation. And like, I feel like maybe the problem with the alt-right is that they can't fit into a new reality, right? Yeah. Because they're so stuck for whatever reason on this other, on this history that is, you know, passing away. Why well, isn't that a crisis going on from the former Soviet Republic all the way to here? Hmm. Yeah. How, how do you... Christendom, Christendom, sat on the wall. Christendom, Christendom, had a great fall. <laughs> Humpty Dumpty, you heard it first. Here. Yeah, so how do you put the pieces back together? I don't think, uh, uh, I think the only pieces God ever intended together, put back together, uh, are reflected in the day of Pentecost. And uh, mm. we're still trying to grow into that. Amen to that, friends. Amen. Shake, I'm getting down. 